Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. I'm the founder and president at ABS. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. This week, we welcome Lori Unum to the podcast to discuss insurance coverage and autism services. She's the ideal guest to discuss both the history of access to care and autism, as well as the current status, the pitfalls, and the current concerns. Lori played a vital role in the autism insurance reform movement back in the mid-2000s. She just worked for nearly a decade as the VP of State Government Affairs for Autism Speaks, taught a university course titled Autism and the Law at George Washington University, and is currently the CEO of CASP, which is the Council of Autism Service Providers. That's a lot of work you have going on, Lori. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, we, We are lucky to have you. And I mean, I ask this question of all the guests that come on, because in order to have that much energy, that much passion, that much devotion to the field, there must be a reason that you got into it from day one. So what is your family's journey and how did you get involved in the, in the autism industry? There very much is a reason, and his name is Ryan, and he was my firstborn child. I have three sons now. But when I was, well, I was going to say a young mother, I guess I was medium young mother uh, with (laughs) with one child. I, um, gosh, really had very little idea what autism even was back then. This was, Mm -hmm. um, my son was born in 2001. And honestly, at that time, my familiarity with autism was pretty much rain man. As A lot Mm -hmm. of people about my age, that's about all we knew about it. Um, And so when our son wasn't developing, typically, really, it was at his 18-month-old well-child checkup when his pediatrician said, yeah, he probably should be saying some things and doing more things. Let's refer him to a developmental pediatrician for further testing and screening. I didn't even know what a developmental pediatrician was. I kind of thought she was making that up and... uh, (laughs) But anyway, we got referred for additional testing and um, much like many many families face today, it took a very long time to even get in to see these specialists who can diagnose autism. So that's kind of the first thing I remember about the journey was that the waiting was horrible. Like they've already told you something. It seems like something's wrong with your child's development. And then you wait for months and months and months. So that was pretty bad. I think at the 18-month-old checkup, the pediatrician really was delving into language. Um, And she kept asking me, does Ryan say this? Does Ryan say that? And the answers were really no to all of them. And she said, well, does he babble? And I remember now, not I I didn't really know the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. I said, um... Yeah, I think he babbles. Well, now that I have three children, I am quite certain that Ryan did not babble at all because my second child babbled. And now (laughs) I, I, I understand what it was she was looking for. But when you're a new mom, 
I mean, he did make some noises. So I thought, well, maybe that's what they, they mean by babbling. Um, and so it's just really hard. So much of the autism diagnosis relies on parental report of what is happening at home. And when you're new parents, and I had never worked in childcare or anything, so I'm mm-hmm. not even sure I was answering all the questions that well. I think that's so tough. I mean, the way that you're describing, you know, being that parent, being the one that's having to give the self-report, never knowing how to compare against anything. And yet that's going to be your future trajectory of, can I get care? That's got to be scary and daunting. It really was scary. And I was ultimately really grateful for the referral to specialists and particularly when we went to see an interdisciplinary team, because it was great to have a team of professionals, a psychologist and a speech language pathologist and a developmental pediatrician, all putting eyes on him for a period of a couple of days. It just gave me a lot more comfort um, since I didn't feel like I would, I knew what I was doing that well. Now I will say in our particular situation, we had difficulties at birth. Um, Ryan was um, oxygen deprived at birth. I, I had what's called an abruptive placenta. And so if you know anything about um, childbirth, they give what's called an APGAR score and to a, chi- to a baby when they're born. And Ryan's APGAR score was one, which meant he was barely alive. And it took eight and a half minutes for them to get him breathing. And so... Um, Honestly, from the time we were discharged from the hospital after a few days in the neonatal um, intensive care unit, they said to me, be on the lookout for developmental issues because there could be some some issues related to this birth. But even then, as a first-time mom, you're still not exactly sure, has he met this milestone or not really? What, What did they exactly want him to be doing? So... Um, so yeah, it it was a very tough, it was a time of a lot of uncertainty and, um, waiting difficulty. As I said, we were very lucky that we lived in Washington, DC at that time. And so when we called Georgetown and learned that the wait was going to be six months or whatever, we put our names on, but then we also called children's and then we also called Kennedy Krieger at Johns Hopkins. And so we just got on the waiting list everywhere and we're like, whoever calls us first, that's where we'll go. And it's funny because I think the one who called us first was children's. Yes, it was. And we went there and we got a diagnosis from the developmental pediatrician. And then shortly thereafter, Kennedy Krieger called and they had an opening and I was like, (laughs) you know what, let's just go, let's just go, you know, and Mm -hmm. just kind of have a second opinion and make sure And so we got the diagnosis again and then Georgetown called. And so we ended up seeing three sets of specialists and I'm really grateful for that because they all three recommended ABA. Oh, wow. And having that alignment back in the early 2000s, that is not the norm. I don't right. And so I feel very grateful, first of all, that we lived in a major metropolitan area like Washington, D.C. And then secondly, that we were able to get that um, confirmation of what was the right course of treatment. 
I mean, their, their reports, their diagnostic reports didn't look identical from doctor to doctor to doctor. Mm -hmm. But I was like, okay, if they all recommend this ABA thing, which I of course had never heard of, I had no idea what they were talking about or what it was, but I, I knew they all mentioned it. And so, um, so that put me on the right path more quickly than uh, if we hadn't had all that confirmation. It really sounds like from the beginning, just, I mean, as, as scary and horrific an experience of having a child who has any sort of health problems um, at birth is that that created, you know, at least the high alert. So you were, you were watching and you're observing, but you fell into a situation that I would presume most did not fall into back in the 2000s, where they had an interdisciplinary team, a developmental pediatrician was anywhere near them, and they were able to get access to care started or even have an ABA organization for you to be able to start that piece of treatment available. What was access to care like back when you started, when, now that you recollect after hearing other families' experiences? Again, I, I, Jeff, I feel so lucky that we lived in Washington, D.C., and not where we live now in South Carolina. I mean, I love South Carolina. It's my home state, but services were not nearly as readily available in most places as they were in major metropolitan areas. So we were very lucky when we came home with our diagnoses I first started researching, you know, I did my Google research on what is ABA and I went through what all the other parents go through of trying to understand what is this? Is this something cruel? Cause you read all those, you know, accounts and, and then all the other things that were available is very confusing time, but we were able to find ABA providers in the area more than one. So we had choice. We interviewed multiple providers and, um, we were able to move forward. I mean, I mean, one of the regrets I have is that we didn't, I wish we had started it the next day. I wish we had just picked up the phone, started with some ABA provider the next day. And in fact, it took me several months to get it in place. But in part, I was researching too much probably and trying to decide which of the providers was the best. Um, and so I do have some regrets about waiting too long to get started, but as you say, at least they were there. There were providers available and they came into our home. I could hardly understand what they were talking about. They said, Oh, we'll have this many targets and we'll run these programs. I'm like, what, what, what is a target? What is a program? I don't, I don't even understand what you're saying, but, mm-hmm. but we, we got started. We got started, but, but, um, you know, once we selected a provider and they explained to us what this would look like, you know, they're going through that we'll have a board certified behavior analyst, the, you know, the highly trained consultant will design the program and then we'll train the lower level technicians who will be in your house this number of hours per week. And we had been prescribed a very intensive program because my son was very severely impaired and not talking Mm -hmm. at all. And by this point, he's two um, or just about two. And, um, you know, so it was a a really intensive program. And then they sat down to show us what the cost was going to be. And it was kind of broken down. The, The BCBA will cost this much and the technicians generally make about this much. And, 
when you got down to the bottom of the math sheet, it was going to be about $70,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And I remember turning to my husband and saying, oh my gosh, thank goodness we have health insurance. (laughs) I didn't know. I didn't know at that time that health insurance would not pay one penny of it. I just assumed, well, you know, we've been working our whole lives. We've been paying premiums our whole lives. Glad we've done that. I didn't know. Now, and and that's actually, I mean, I I know that you got heavily involved in the advocacy work, but just that mentality of what you were describing right there is that you just went through a diagnostic process. You just were told the financial implications of this. And then you have the lifestyle components of, okay, so I'm having either somebody come into my house for 35 to 40 hours for an intensive care that, or I'm trying to figure out other ways to manage this. How am I going to juggle my career and my son's treatment? And so how did you manage that as a, as a parent at that time? juggling through all of those daunting thought processes. It it was incredibly difficult. Like I cannot stress enough how very difficult it was. You know, as, as mom, I'm thinking, okay, I will need to quit my job um, because my son has these needs. And then I'm thinking, but if I quit my job, we don't have any way to pay for the therapy. The only reason we can pay for it is because we both work and we can, live on his salary and use my salary to pay for therapy. And so you don't even know what to do. Like you're committed that you're going to do what's best for your child, but what is best for your child quitting work or working full time. So you can pay for him to have the therapy that the doctors recommended. And then on top of that, living in DC, uh, Dan and I were eight hours away from any family, his family lived eight hours North and my family lived eight hours South. And so we're struggling with those huge decisions, but we're struggling with every day. Like, all right, how are we going to get groceries this week? Because you can't go to the grocery store with Ryan. That was way too hard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, fortunately there were, there were two of us. So we of course managed to get groceries, but um, the everyday decisions of, um, you know, who's going to wake up at midnight and drive Ryan around for a couple of hours so that he will ultimately get some sleep that night. Um, That was Dan most of the time. Thank goodness. (laughs) I mean, he would so many times get up in the middle of the night and drive Ryan down interstate 66 for an hour or two to get him to fall asleep. I think those are the, those are the pieces that oftentimes uh, we don't know about is that as a, as a community is that we don't really sit back and reflect on all of the decisions that have to be made when even accessing care. Mm-hmm. Um, selfishly, I'm going to say for the autism community is that um, the fact that you were there and that you have the skill set that you have and the passion that you have, um, you were the right person at the right time to be able to help move this forward for so many other families. Um, I'd love to get into that journey because uh, figuring out how you got to that fight would be interesting to know. Well, I mean, honestly, Jeff, it took me a few years to get there because for the first few years, 
like from the time Ryan was almost two to almost four, I really was just trying to figure out how to kind of get through the day to day. How are we going to get his hair washed this week? You know, baths were a terrible thing. I, I was trying to figure out everyday living with a child with very severe autism and trying to figure out the finances of how am I going to keep my job so we can keep paying for this. After a couple of years, during that period, we moved to South Carolina because we decided, okay, we've got to be near one family or the other because we've got to have an occasional moment of respite to go to the grocery store or, you know, just to go to McDonald's by ourselves or anything, you know, we just needed some family help. And so that was a good decision. So we moved to South Carolina during this period, but we were still privately paying for the therapy. And I just kept thinking, I met this whole new set of moms. Basically I, when we got to Charleston, South Carolina, I joined some autism mom support groups And I would talk to them about, well, what kind of intervention is your child getting? And most of them would say, well, a little speech, a little OT. And I wanted to say, oh, no ABA, but, you know, I didn't want to like rub them. And then one would say, oh, my child is getting ABA. He gets an hour a week from the school. And, you know, you're torn between, do you tell them that an hour a week is not going to, it's not going to cut it? Or do you not tell them that because it's like rubbing salt into a wound? Mm-hmm. And that experience of kind of talking to those other moms really just drove me to the point where I couldn't sleep at night thinking about, okay, Ryan's getting 40 hours a week of therapy because he was lucky enough to be born into a family with two working parents. We're both lawyers. You know, we have decent jobs. So we could financially make it work for him. Even though it was a struggle, even for us. I mean, we sold our house and moved to a less expensive house so that we could continue to pay for his therapy. So it was a struggle even for us. But then I'm thinking, what about the rest of these families? I remember looking up what is the average household income for a family of four in South Carolina. And it was something like $45,000 a year. And I was like, well, what do those families do? You know, there's nothing they can do to buy a full ABA program for their child. And I kept thinking about the children themselves. It is so unfair that those children don't even get a shot. They don't, they don't get to try the ABA and see if they can kind of overcome the autistic deficits. Um, they don't, they don't even get a shot. And it's got a way on the family too. I mean, if you're debating between refinancing my house or knowing that even if I do that, I still can't cover the cost of therapy and you're watching your child and thinking, I'm not giving them treatment. I'm not giving them the medical care or the behavioral care that they need. That's got to really hit the parents hard. I, I couldn't be imagine being in that position. Me either. And I, and I, I just, every day I kept thinking about how awful it must feel as a parent to know there's a treatment out there that undeniably works for these kids 
And yet you can't get it for your kid because you're not rich enough. And I just thought that is wrong. There is no reason that should be the circumstance in the United States of America in the 2000s, right? And particularly, Jeff, where, you know, most of these parents I was talking to, they're paying for private health insurance, right? These are parents who are doing what we ask families to do, working and paying for health care for themselves and their families in case something happens. And I was like, these parents are not getting the benefit of the bargain. (laughs) They've been paying premiums every month and something has happened and they need to tap into it, but they're not getting their end of the bargain. And that just felt so inequitable to me. Yeah. And the insurance companies weren't going to change that on their own. And I know over the years is that we've luckily been able to convince most states to pass legislation. But what sort of work was entailed? I know every state must be so different. But I mean, that sounds like a lot of boots on the ground. It sounds like a lot of people sharing their story. What was entailed in this legislative battle just to be able to match? I've got insurance. I should get my the care for my child. Can you tell me about some of the challenges that, that went through the legislative process with that? It was an enormous battle in every state, really. <laughs> um, you know, in South Carolina, I, I guess it was the summer of 2005 when, so Ryan would have been four, and I literally sat down at my kitchen table and wrote out on a piece of paper what I thought the law should be like I, even though I was a lawyer, I didn't do legislative work. So I had never written a bill. I didn't really know how to, but I knew I could write out what I thought the law needed to be. And basically I just wrote out, if you have health insurance and your child gets diagnosed with autism and the doctor has recommended a certain course of treatment, that's evidence-based, you know, not anything out there. Um, health insurance must pay for it. And I was like, Mm -hmm. man, this is so simple and common sense. I am going to just take this down to the legislature (laughs) and get it passed like that. And if uh, only, (laughs) I know if only it were that simple and it was not at all, but I did um, reach out. Well, I'll tell you your, your behavior analyst audience will appreciate this. The first thing I did after I wrote up the bill Then I put together a few binders of data just to support the efficacy of ABA, information about autism, the the literature to support ABA, to show the empirical validation and all this. So I had my binders. I was ready to go. And then I went to see my older brother was a political consultant. And so he was kind of my entree into that legislative world. So I went to see him and I sat down across from his desk and I said, I've written a bill to require health insurance to cover treatments for autism. And I need you to tell me how I should go about trying to get it passed. And, you know, he picked up his phone and he called a legislator friend of his, somebody he had helped get elected and said, Hey buddy, I need you to do me a favor. I want you to meet with my little sister. She's got some little bill she's written. And the friend said, no problem. I'll meet with her. And then I, um, told my brother that I had um, compiled the, the binders of data. And he said, you did what? I said, I've already compiled all the binders of data that we're going to need to make our case. 
Mm-hmm. And I remember him rolling back in his chair and just laughing, and laughing. <laughs> and he said, binders of data. Is that what they teach you in law school? You're not going to need any binders of data. And I said, well, yes, we are, because they're not going to be familiar with what ABA is. We're going to have to prove that it works. I mean, obviously, I don't expect anybody to vote for it if they don't know what it is and they don't know that it works. Mm -hmm. And he laughed again and he said, oh, you don't know anything about how politics work. He said, (laughs) nobody wants to see your binders. He said, just leave them on the floor in my office. You're done with your binders. Nobody wants them. And he said, the way you're going to get your bill passed is you find an autism mom in every district and you have that autism mom call their legislator and say, Senator Smith, this is Susie Jones. I live in your district. And I need to ask you a favor. I have a child with autism. There's this autism bill that's pending. And it would mean so much to me and my family if you would sign on to sponsor that bill or commit to voting for that bill. Would you do that for my family? (laughs) And he said, there's your strategy. That's your whole strategy. Forget about your data. So, um, so anyway, that was my introduction to politics and, and trying to get this legislation passed. And it really was much more about the grassroots advocacy. So you said it sounded like it was a lot of boots on the ground. Yes, it was the involvement of a lot of families and providers in every state. Yeah, I I ran into that same fallacy, I think myself, where it's like, oh, logic will work. And Logic is not is not the way that you're going to really kind of pull on, on legislation. It's the it's the heartstrings. It's, it's the the, heartstrings. the passion. Yeah, you know, and I think that I mean, to the credit of the legislature, I will say you had to have all that constituent involvement and heartstrings and to get their attention. But in fairness, most people didn't care anything about the data or the efficacy. But there were a few people who were the gatekeepers Mm -hmm. and they were going to make sure that they weren't passing just some junk. Right. Absolutely. You know, so, so in the end, I wasn't as um, dismayed with the system as I was the day my brother described it to me. You know, there were, there were some people who were going to check out what is this ABA, but I got to tell you, like just going through the process the first time in South Carolina, I remember one legislator, I was standing at the podium testifying. There were a whole, there's a whole room full of autism moms behind me and dads. And one legislator during the committee hearing said, well, wait a minute. What is autism anyway? Isn't it something the moms did while they were pregnant, like smoking or drinking? He said, and um, I think it's, really just kind of a hyped up ADHD. I don't think it's a real thing. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize we were going to have to start that far back, right? I knew we were going to have to educate them about what ABA was and how intervention can make a big difference for children with autism. But I didn't know we were going to have to convince them that autism was a real thing and that it's not caused by the mom smoking and drinking during pregnancy. Well, I mean, just uh, it makes you take a step back and realize how much awareness and acceptance works that has been done over the last two decades, because I don't, I don't know that we'd run in, hopefully, 
to those same questions. But I do know is that you've you definitely have been able to open the door for this legislative process to occur. And now all 50 states are there, but uh, it's hard, it's hard to rest on your laurels, I guess. It's there's always something that needs to continue to improve. So where are we now with this access to care or where are we with people that, uh, what, are, what are the problems that we're still debating? That's a great question because we have a very long way to go. Even, even with the basic insurance coverage that, that I worked so hard and many other families worked so hard to achieve over the past decade, that's not even 100% finished because there are families who will get a diagnosis tomorrow whose health insurance doesn't cover uh, ABA still. There are, there are pockets, there are gaps in the coverage here and there in certain states. So even that piece of it is not finished. Beyond that, though, um, I guess where my passion and heart lies right now is in adult services, um, in part because my son just left his teenage years and mm-hmm. I'm thinking a lot about next steps. My son, by the way, has benefited tremendously from ABA, but he's not one of the best outcome kids. You know, he um, he's still essentially nonverbal and occasionally has aggressive behaviors. So, so we're not looking at a typical adulthood for him. And we, we will continue to need services. We'll need residential at some time. He'll need employment assistance or day programming. And um, it, it's, there's just a, a huge dearth of services throughout the lifespan that I feel we really have to focus our efforts on at this point. Yeah. I would imagine both in the on the funding side and on the provider side is oh. that, you know, providers need to build that competency at the same time as being able to find the right funding principles That's right. to get there. Um, you, had, you had spoken about, you know, some of the adult services. And I do know that there are states that have finally moved the needle. Um, is that is that the, the same recommendation you'd be giving to families is that, you know, if this is your challenge, what you need to be doing is doing that call to action, calling up your legislators, helping them understand the pains that you're going through and finding somebody that could potentially craft the bill that could start the decision-making process and to start that implementation of policy. I think it's exactly that. It, um, it hasn't changed. The issue has changed a little bit, but the, the methodology um, to, to be successful in the advocacy sphere has not changed at all. And um, I think that my philosophy 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when all this started was that what I'm going to do is play my rightful role as a citizen in a democratic society. And my role as citizen is to take ideas to our legislators, our policymakers, and educate them and provide them the background and propose a solution. Because you can't expect a legislator to know about and be aware of all the issues or problems that people have, right? As I said at the beginning, I didn't really know about autism, and I I certainly didn't know about ABA before my own child was diagnosed. 
the first step as a citizen, my job is to calmly and politely educate them. And, and I say calmly and politely, that's really important to me too. So many people go to their legislature and they bang their fist on the desk and they say, why haven't y'all done anything about this problem? Well, the legislator didn't even know about that problem, probably, yeah. right? So calmly and politely go to your legislators and say, hey, I'm here to inform you about an issue that my family is facing and the difficulties it's presenting. And by the way, I have some ideas for solutions, what we could do to make this better for our state, for our society. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think that's exactly what we have to do in adult services and everywhere else that there's a gap. Yeah. And, and the way that you're approaching it, I think is so important. It's a uh, kind of go back to the, uh, the adage about the carrot and the stick. It's that, you know, you get far more by, by going in and respecting those that you're trying to work with than to set up an adversarial relationship. And it sounds like you've done such a wonderful job with that. I, there is one piece and it, and it might speak to where your son is in the process. Cause I'd like to get your point of view on this, but um, the idea of, of inclusion, I think is so different depending on who your, who your child is, what your situation is. And I know that with a lot of insurance still is that there's, there's barriers to being able to adapt and accept treatment across all environments and requirements for participation of families that maybe would create access to care. Um, but I'd like to hear a little bit on, you know, how does inclusion match with being able to provide the care and the style of care where it's needed? And that could differ for every single child. And what does that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, I I can go a couple of different ways with what you're asking about, talking about inclusion and talking about barriers that, that funders put up. Like, I feel very strongly that services need to be provided and funded in any and every environment. Um, you know, children, um, individuals operate, live in a variety of environments, and there's absolutely no reason to put up an artificial obstacle to seeing or treating a child in any environment. Um, you know, I think I, I feel guilty. I think that those obstacles came into our field as a result of the insurance funding, because in the very old days, the few people who were lucky enough to get full ABA programs funded through educational systems, you know, the schools weren't coming in and placing barriers and saying, well, we're going to pay for your ABA in the clinic, but we won't pay for it at home, or we'll pay for it in the home, but you can't do it in a school environment, or you can't do a community outing because that looks too much like a field trip. Those barriers didn't really exist when, when there were different types of funding. And I think those barriers came about as a result of insurance funding, where the insurers were just trying to manage the utilization of this. But again, I think it's, it's our responsibility and job to educate the funders. No, no, you want to pay for this across all environments. What we're trying to do is achieve the maximum functioning capacity for this individual. And if you limit us to X environments, they're only going to func function maximally in, in X. You want it everywhere. And, and 
um, you know, you, you would love to be able to discharge this individual from uh, ABA care, but that's not going to happen if we don't generalize across environments. Yeah. And I think that that becomes really important because when you're looking at treatment and you're looking at the community being involved in treatment over time and people being able to accept and appreciate people who have uh, been diagnosed with autism and, and realize that there's such a value to integrate them into the community is that you have to establish the right skills to get there first. Right. right. And then you have to figure out a way to continue to support them in all the environments and opportunities that they have. And I, I think I agree with the fact that you can't limit what a care model looks like yeah. as long as you're hitting the medical need for that person to be all they can be in contributing. Right. I mean, we have to, ABA at its core is, is meant to be delivered in a highly individualized fashion. And we cannot let the funding streams that are newer to this field dictate or remove that individualization because it just won't, you know, we promised the funders, we promised the legislators, oh, this is effective. If, if you help us get it paid for, we're going to show you how effective it is. Mm-hmm. And if we allow them to erect these barriers and dictate or, or, or make it so protocol driven that it's not really individualized for the child, it's not going to live up to the effectiveness promises that we made. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm going to pivot slightly here, Lori, just because all the work that you've done advocating for families, all the work that you did when you were at Autism Speaks, opening up all these opportunities, it, it, it's created a lot more access to care a lot more providers in the field because the provider base has grown over that time period. The fact that you're now at the Council of Autism Service Providers, I think is wonderful for the provider network because as a parent, who else could keep the providers accountable for responsible growth and patient first and patient centered attitudes. Can you tell me about that transition and, and, was it was it as seamless as as you've made it look? I mean, or, or have there been hiccups? Yeah, I mean, I'll say, Jeff, when when CASP first approached me, uh, they were in need of a new chief executive, and um, approached me about it. I I initially said I wasn't interested because I really was very happy in my job at Autism Speaks. I, I loved my time there and and loved what we were accomplishing. But um, we, it was 2019, and that's the year that we finished all 50 states. And I, I rethought it, and I was kind of like, you know, actually, I think this would be a really logical next step for me as kind of career progression, because I've spent all of this time advocating on behalf of families and working for greater access to care and to treatment. And now that there is so much more access with, with these consistent funding streams available in every state, there's an explosion of providers, frankly. And I feel um, really responsible to help ensure that we keep our focus on quality intervention and on these kids and these individuals. I, I'm trying to not say kids anymore. I'm thinking about the whole lifespan. But um, 
you know, well, I'm going to turn back to the kids for a moment. I, I think about what it must be like for parents today. If you get an autism diagnosis and the doctor says, go get ABA, man, if you Google that today, you're going to have a choice of 20 providers maybe or 30 providers, much more than when my son was diagnosed. And how do you make those choices? How do you even know? Like you, yesterday, you'd never heard of ABA. Today, you're trying to evaluate 20 or 30 providers. And um, I, I just want to make sure that families don't base that decision on who has the prettiest website mm-hmm. and that they know here is how you find out if this is a, a provider who is committed to quality care because your child is only two once and three once. And if you squander that opportunity because you go with a provider who really isn't committed to evidence-based practices or isn't committed to appropriate ratios, you don't get a do-over, right? You don't get a do-over. So it's just really important to me to, um, I'm not going to say monitor the field. I don't think they need me to be their monitor, but to help the field, to help the, the provider field commit to quality care and understand, agree and understand kind of across the board what that means, yeah. to talk about best practices and standards and, and agree, reach some consensus on what those are. One thing in, in my job with Autism Speaks, because I did travel to all 50 states very extensively, it became readily apparent to me that there's a huge variation in services. And whereas, you know, one provider might think, you know, I need a BCBA, I need one BCBA for every 10 kids. And another provider might think I need a BCBA for every 30 kids. Well, that's pretty different. And so I think one of the things that CASP can do and is doing is helping to create some consistency and, standards for what is an appropriate level of care. Well, I'm, I'm really, I'm really glad that you're leading and spearheading this initiative. It's, it's at, at my heart, that's where quality care, that's why I got into the field to begin with. It's, it's creating this quality care. And if people have gone out there, advocated, gone out and put in the hours to make sure that they get access to care, access is only valuable if what you're getting is worth fighting for. So that quality piece becomes so important. And in a rapidly growing field, I couldn't agree more as having some standards, some benchmarks to be able to kind of push and hopefully grow over time so that we can continue to challenge and make our field stronger is exactly where it needs to be. And I'm glad that we have somebody whose focus is that right now on, on being able to do that. Well, thank you. It's very encouraging to me. I'll just quickly add, you know, the field is exploding and just growing exponentially, but so is CAS. And for that, I'm very grateful because more and more providers are deciding, okay, let's, let's get together in this association where we collaborate and we share ideas. So let's, let's be collaborative and work together and commit together to high quality and best practices. So that's very, very encouraging to me. Yeah. And, and I mean, just hearing all of the sharing of stories, the, the passion that families have, and what I'm hearing from you as well is the transparency on the provider network to make a better product over time and continue to evolve it and strengthen it. 
I think those are all great tenants to kind of really build off of. But so we're we're going to be taking our podcast live during the the World Autism Month, and and one of the things I'd love to kind of hear from your perspective on the advocacy side is what advice do you have for parents that are looking to to celebrate, to uh, build more of an acceptance, to uh, make more awareness and education? What advice do you have for them during this month to be able to be out there? Get out there and talk about it. Use your voice. I mean, still so many people don't really know what autism is, or maybe they think they know what autism is, but in fact, they've met one kid. And, you know, they say, if you've met one person with autism, you met one person with autism because there's such variation. You know, I often give a a presentation at conferences called Let Me Hear Your Voice. And it's kind of a takeoff on the book that so many of us read. A lot of when, when autism, when you get an autism diagnosis for your child, a lot of parents, one of the first, first books you read is Let Me Hear Your Voice. And it's talking about the child's voice, of course. But I think about that book all the time. And I think it also speaks to autism parents. Let me mm-hmm. hear your voice, because particularly for those of us who have nonverbal children, my voice is the one that needs to be heard to make his needs known and understood. And um, I I just think April, because it's Autism Awareness Month, just is an invitation to parents to get out there and get involved. I mean, you should do it all the time if you can, but you can look at April as a permission to talk (laughs) about your child's autism. It's in the news. People are looking for autism stories. So it's... And I should say to self-advocates as well, as well to talk about your autism. So mm-hmm. parents talk about your child's autism. Self-advocates talk about your autism. Help uh, everyone understand both the gifts. I mean, I actually, I don't talk about this that often, but I actually have two kids on the spectrum, my oldest and my youngest. But they're polar opposite ends of the spectrum. Ryan, my oldest, uh, would not be able to express his needs or desires. And my youngest very much can express his own views about autism. And I encourage him to do so. Oh, he actually, awesome. um, he, he will not mind me sharing this because I've asked, asked him the question before. Um, when he was starting sixth grade, the teacher on the first day of school, the teacher sent home one of those little about me forms where you, you know, fill out your name, tell us about your family, what are your hobbies, what's your favorite TV show. And the last two questions on his form were um, your greatest strength and your greatest weakness. And for both of those, he answered my autism. That's <laughs> Choked me up when I read it, and I thought, mm-hmm. you know, you're exactly right, buddy. You, you, yep. it, it presents some struggles to you, and it makes you this amazing, incredible kid um, in other ways. And I loved that perspective, and I think I decided at that moment, all right, you get to tell your autism story. Yeah, uh, it sounds like his self awareness is something that we should all strive. Is realizing that at times our strength is also our weakness. It's how do you yeah. how do you manage it? And 
I, I, I would love to meet him someday because he sounds like such I'm a brilliant sure guy. Will. I'm sure he will. <laughs> so, He's incredibly um, insightful in all areas. And I think, yeah. I, I do think that's one of his autism gifts, yeah. right? So I it's just being a, you know, in it, tune, it, right. Being in tune. And, and I, I am so acutely aware of all the struggles between severe autism advocates and self advocates who say autism is a gift and it shouldn't be treated at all. And I think, gosh, I would love to be part of this conversation because I'm living both ends of that in my yeah. every day. They're both at my dinner table every night and you're both right. You know, mm-hmm. uh, my, my youngest son's autism is a gift for him. And my oldest son's autism is not at all a gift. And if I could take it away for his sake, I would. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing is that uh, how broad autism is. And also is that, you know, treatment is also on a spectrum as well, is that you're going to have a variety of different needs. And it sounds like for your, your older son is that, that needed to be intensive. It needed to be very directive. And it sounds like for your older son or for your younger son, it's very targeted. It's like, you know, let's, let's work on these things. And he has a voice in guiding that and should have a voice. And absolutely. That's so cool. um, In third grade, he was in a pull out social skills class at public school. And he got pulled out for like 30 minutes of social skills each morning. And about three months into third grade, he came home and he said, Mom, I thought you told me that that social skills class was part of my IEP and thus it was it's supposed to be individualized. I said, that's that's right. He said, well, it's not individualized at all. I said, oh, well, give it time. He said, no, no. He said that this is the way the class works. The teacher has one skill that she has decided upon for that week. And everybody in the class works on that particular skill, whether that's your deficit or not. And that's the way the class works. And I said, (laughs) oh, well, you know, all the while I'm just dying laughing because I know he's exactly right. And I said, well, honey, you're only three months in. I, I said, just just give it a try. Maybe she's getting to the more individualized part. He said, she's not. That's her plan for the year. And I find the class stigmatizing, so I want it out of it. Uh I was like, okay, you just made a very good case for it, and we're calling an IEP tomorrow. I wish I could advocate for myself that well. (laughs) Honestly, the moment he said I find it stigmatizing as a third grader, I was like, okay, well, that's really the last thing I want. And um, if you can can make your point that well, fine, we'll pull you out. Yeah. You earned it. Uh, <laughs> so with um, with the adult services being such a highlight and something that, that you're really pivoting to as far as your own passion, especially with where your son is and with everything going on with CAS, is there, is there anything else that we need to be knowing about in the autism community that uh, that is just something we need to get our research on or start educating ourselves on or just continue to speak out about right now? I think what I want to see more and more focus on is just um, the supports that are needed across the spectrum for all different levels. Um, There's so much focus right now on 
It used to be that that individuals with autism, if they needed residential care, would be in institutions. And then there was a huge movement against institutions and everybody had to live in the community, which came to mean in a group home, in a normal Mm -hmm. neighborhood. And so that was an improvement that was meant to be an improvement. But now there's this assumption that that's where everybody wants to live, is in a group home in a neighborhood. I happen to believe that my son would rather live in a complex, more like a um, like nursing homes that have uh, running trails and a basketball court and a pool, and that he would feel confined living in a group home because he doesn't drive and he's not safe to walk places um, far away on his own. And so I just think I would like to see more emphasis, more recognition of the fact that the needs are so different. And what we need to preserve is choice for everyone. You should have a choice in whether you receive ABA treatment or not. You should have a choice in whether you, uh, what kind of working situation you end up in. You should have a choice where you live and, and one segment of the community should not purport to speak for the whole community in determining that a group home in a neighborhood is the best setting. So I, I think that is my big push right now is just recognizing the variation across the spectrum and the need for individualized services and support and choice across those services and supports. Yeah, and I, I I couldn't agree more. I think that uh, the Olmstead Act that is out there right now, which is kind of preventing that choice to be broad and narrowing it down to just the group home or community-based access, um, needs to have discussion because there's probably goods and bads to all of it. And without people feeling like they have dialogue around it to understand the pros and cons and the implications of a one-size-fits-all approach, I think it becomes very hard and then you lose choice. And I think that I might have to invite you back to talk about that one again. <laughs> a whole other episode on that. I assure you. I've got lots of thoughts on it. Uh, well, thank you so much, Lori, for joining us today. I feel like at each one of these episodes, I learn, I learn more. I walk away with all new perspectives and this is another one. And And I do want to appreciate your work going into Autism Awareness Month because you and a lot of the other families out there laid the groundwork for services that others never had access to. And now sometimes you take things for granted. And there's a lot of families that that need to just kind of understand this is a work in progress, but there's a lot of people that did a lot of blood, sweat, and tears beforehand. So we applaud you for that. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all of the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS. ABS is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids, that's plural, dot com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.